Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Norcross. Luke Doris is working on TV this afternoon, but he'll be back here on the podcast soon. This is podcast number nine of Hurricane Season 2020 and number 47 in our series. Today, we're going to talk to author Eric J. Dolan about his new book, A Furious Sky, The 500-Year History of America's Hurricanes. Here's the book right there. It's really a terrific book. It's not a meteorological review of hurricanes, although there's plenty of meteorology in it, but it's the stories of the people of the time, how they lived, survived, and sometimes died during the great hurricanes that have affected our country. Since every storm is different, the stories are as varied as the times and the people involved. From the hurricane that hit Christopher Columbus's fleet to the historic hurricanes that changed the course of wars, the great Miami hurricane, of course, and the epic hurricanes in the middle and the end of the 20th and the early 21st century. We'll talk to Eric Dolan here in just a moment. I'm recording this portion of the podcast on Thursday, August 20th, 2020. If you're listening at some point in the future, like maybe even later this afternoon, you've got to tune into Channel 10 in South Florida for Local 10 News or on Local10.com, where you can always watch Local 10 News live or download the Max Tracker Hurricane app or the Local 10 weather app for current information. Of course, here in South Florida today, this Thursday, uh, August 20th, the nominal beginning of the peak of the hurricane season. We're carefully watching what's uh, now called Tropical Depression Number 13, several hundred miles east of the Caribbean islands. The bottom line on this one is that the steering flow appears very well established, and it's likely to bring the system across or near the islands tomorrow and over the weekend and to the vicinity of Florida about Monday. What's completely murky is how strong it's going to be. The computer forecast models are kind of all over the place. There's also giant mountains right near the track that it's forecast to take in the Dominican Republic and over Cuba. So we have to be ready for fast-changing forecasts because a little wobble is going to make a tremendous amount of difference in how strong the storm is when it gets here. And we're not going to have like a whole lot of time for uh, this thing to develop and to watch it as it approaches. This is not going to be an Irma-type situation where we sit here for days and days and days and talk about it. It's going to come, come on quickly, and there can be significant changes. And I won't be surprised if the forecast, which right now shows a strong tropical storm in our vicinity on Monday, doesn't uh, change significantly. It may change significantly down, and it may change significantly up uh, to a hurricane. So we need to be ready for all those possibilities. And we're not even sure what name it's going to get at the moment this Thursday morning because there's another system in the Caribbean that's on the verge of developing as well. The first one of those two that becomes a tropical storm gets winds of at least 40 miles an hour or so is going to be Laura. The second one is going to be Marco. So either Laura or Marco uh, is uh, likely to be coming in this direction, although there are really credible computer models that never really develop the storm that's coming this way into a significant storm. So we're just going to have to see. The system that's in the Caribbean right now will likely develop today or tomorrow. If it never gets terribly strong, it'll likely track toward Mexico or South Texas. But if it intensifies fairly quickly before it enters the Gulf, it could get pulled to the north toward the northern Gulf Coast and be another system 
that will have to be watched for everybody from Florida on over uh, to Texas. Uh, it's another one we're not going to be watching a long time. This is going to be a busy Friday and weekend in the tropics as these things develop. And there's a third system. It's a big tropical disturbance just moving off of Africa. Early indications are that it will move out to sea, but uh, that assumes it's going to develop into at least a tropical depression or tropical storm so that it gets picked up and pulled to the north. We'll have to watch and be sure that that indeed happens. So it's getting busy as we uh, expect this time in August. We just wish it wasn't all kind of aimed at generally uh, our part of the world in terms of tropical depression 13 right now and the system in the Caribbean. So, okay, let's bring in Eric J. Dolan from uh, Marblehead, Massachusetts. Eric has written dozens of books about all kinds of things, all related to the ocean in some fashion. We'll talk to him about that. His new book is called A Furious Sky, The 500-Year History of America's Hurricanes. It's a deeply researched and fascinating compendium of stories about the biggest storms that came along in any time in history and of the Western world and how the people of the time dealt with them. For example, it talks about how hurricanes have changed history when they impacted the French and British naval fleets involved in the American Resolution. So let me introduce Eric J. Dolan. I recorded this talk with him yesterday evening on August 19th. Here's Eric. Hi, Eric. Welcome to the podcast. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. Thanks for having me. So your previous books cover all kinds of subjects, from whales to pirates, but they all involve the ocean in some fashion. Tell us about your background that led you in that direction. Well, when I was a little kid, I lived on Long Island, Long Island Sound. I loved collecting seashells and reading Scientific American, and I just had a great fondness for Jacques Cousteau as well. So uh, as far back as I could remember, when I first started thinking about career options when I was <laughs> nine or ten. I thought I wanted to grow up and be like Jacques Cousteau and be a marine biologist. And I, I kept on to that uh, feeling for quite a while. When I was in high school, uh, I actually, the, the merging of writing and biology uh, came about in my senior year. I wrote a 150-page paper on the mollusks of Long Island wow. Sound, and it included a taxonomic key. So, uh, and actually a couple of chapters of that got published in a, uh, in a journal about uh, malacology. That so, wasn't anyway, overkill I, or anything, was it? I mean, now that no, you look back on it, was that kind of overkill or was that really a, like a big scholarly paper that you're was, proud of at this no, I point? I don't think it was a scholarly paper, <laughs> but for somebody who was 16 or yeah, 17, impressive. I thought it was pretty impressive. Yes. Uh, I'm sure it helped me get into college. <laughs> I remember one of my uh, one of my recommendations for college was written by the head of the invertebrate section at the Museum of Natural History in New York. Mm -hmm. So that I'm sure helped get me into college. But anyway, I so I was always interested in biology and marine biology, and I actually went to Brown thinking I would major in marine biology, but then I started doing some of the classes, uh, the lab classes and the harder science, and I realized I wasn't as interested in the hard science. So I, this is in the late 1970s, early 80s, when the environmental movement was still very big, mm -hmm. and I had an affinity for environmental issues, so I started to gravitate towards the environmental studies program, and I ended up getting a major in environmental studies and one in biology as well. But that's when I left 
marine biology behind, but I always uh, loved it. While I was in college, I actually spent a summer at the Harvard Museum of Comparative Zoology in the mollusk department uh, (laughs) doing taxonomy on Australian seashells. And then I spent the summer at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute uh, working with a guy named John Teal, who Mm -hmm. was a salt marsh expert. Uh, I didn't like the science as much as I did like my cooking job at night. I was a cook at the Fishmonger Cafe. So that was sort of the transition point where I phased out of science. I realized I don't think I would be very good at hard science. I didn't like the lab work. I I barely made it out of physics and chemistry. So uh, that's when I I shifted. But I still had this love of the ocean. I always Mm -hmm. loved watching documentaries on the ocean and my master's and PhD are in environmental policy and public policy and a lot of the papers that I did and the work I did related to the ocean. My, my PhD dissertation was actually on the cleanup of Boston Harbor, the role of the courts in the cleanup of Boston Harbor. So, so there is a continuous theme of my love of the ocean and then here I live in Marblehead, Massachusetts, which is right on the edge of the ocean. Our house is not on the edge of the mm-hmm. ocean. We're only about a quarter of a mile away. And uh, one of the books you mentioned before, my whaling book, when we moved back from Washington, D.C., I was looking around for a book topic. I, I had written a number of other books on environmental nat- wildlife themes. And I was looking around for a book topic, and I said, oh, I live near the ocean. I love the ocean. Let's find something that allows me to write about the ocean. Mm-hmm. And I had a box in my house. It's actually behind me to the left, an uh, old shaker box. It's, it's not Actually, it's not old. It looks like an old shaker box that a uh, family friend gave to us. It's got a whaling scene painted on it. And I remember distinctly, soon after we moved in, I was looking at that box, and I said, whaling? That's a that's a mammoth topic that sounds exciting. Mm-hmm. I read Moby Dick, and that's where that book idea came from. And you're right. All of my books have had a maritime component, more or less. Uh, and I, I still love the ocean. Of all the, the realms on Earth, I love the ocean. You love the skies, maybe a little more. <laughs> well, I grew up at the beach as well, as a matter of fact. Did, did you, uh, talking about whales for a second, did you go to the Whaling Museum in Nantucket when you were writing that, that book? I'm sure you did, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I actually had a full-time job at the National Marine Fisheries Service while I was writing the book, and I was granted a two-week uh, Verney Fellowship by the Nantucket Historical Association, which also runs the museum. So I basically, in the dead of winter, I spent two weeks in Nantucket wow. in a house built on 1835, downtown Nantucket, an old whaling captain mansion. And uh, I spent two weeks going to their library there and reading and writing and having a, a grand old time on, on Nantucket. In very quiet Nantucket, I would imagine, well, in the very, middle of the winter. Very quiet, a little yeah. eerie. Yeah, uh, I went sure. running at night, and it was very, very quiet. But I've had a long association with Nantucket Historical Association mm-hmm. and the Whaling Museum. I'm actually a, a, Nantucket, Histor- a Nantucket Historical Association uh, fellow, a Vernon wow. fellow, and uh, if you ever go to the Nantucket Whaling Museum and you sit in their huge hall and they have an introductory video mm-hmm. that introduces you, that's a documentary that is done by Rick Burns, Ken Burns' brother. Mm-hmm. And I was one of the talking heads in it. So you'll see my head 30 feet tall 
<laughs> really? talking about whaling. Well, I, I'm, you know, I can kind of picture this. I've been to the museum there a, a couple of times. It's really, a, it's a fantastic uh, facility. So uh, the public policy transition, that no doubt, that kind of connects you to people and how the sea and so forth and the environment affects people, which no doubt uh, leads you into this storytelling. But if you were yeah. going to write about uh, hurricanes, 500 years worth seems like a, a, a big <laughs> you know chunk to bite off. How did you yeah. get to uh, picking <laughs> 500 years oh. worth of hurricanes? Well, uh, I have to step back for a second. I've written 14 books, and uh, after I finished a book on lighthouses, uh, Brilliant Beacons, I was trying to think about what my next book was going to be. And I had always been fascinated by hurricanes. I didn't know a lot about them, but I've been fascinated by them. And I started to think about the possibility of writing a book on a single hurricane. But unfortunately, the two hurricanes that came to mind were the Galveston Hurricane of 1900 and the uh, Great Hurricane of 1938, which plowed into Long Island and uh, New England. The problem with those two hurricanes is not that there weren't great stories to tell. There were. But both of them have had a number of excellent books written about them entirely on those hurricanes. And I didn't want to just add one more book mm -hmm. to the literature. So I put aside my hurricane idea. I wrote a book on pirates called Black Flags, Blue Waters, the Epic History of America's Pirates. And after I finished that and it was in production... That was uh, 2017, and as you no doubt remember, 2017 was the hurricane season from hell right. with Harvey, on, Harvey, Irma, yeah. and Maria. Exactly. And my editor and the head of sales at W.W. Norton and LiveWrite, which is the imprint at Norton that I publish under, uh, they, like the rest of us, lived through that season, and it just... Uh, got them interested in the mm -hmm. possibility of maybe we should write, have a book written about all of America's hurricanes. And when they thought of that, they immediately thought of me because a lot of my books span many centuries and a lot of topics, and I have to work very hard to synthesize all that information. So they knew that I had the skill to write a story like this. All they needed mm -hmm. to find out is if I wanted to write the story. So they wrote an email to my agent asking him if, you know, would Eric like to write a history of America's hurricanes? Mm -hmm. And my agent forwarded it to me. And uh, so I was primed to say yes, but I didn't say yes right away. I actually did what I usually do when I'm thinking about a book topic. I went to the library, I got on the computer, and I read a bunch of books and articles about hurricanes. And after doing that, I had a pretty good idea of what the outline of the book would be. So I wrote a proposal, and uh, the rest is history, as they say. So when, when you finally you know, decide to go down this path, you had to have been overloaded with data. I mean, there's, there's, yeah. there's just data galore. Right. Even on old hurricanes, there's data galore in stories. Yeah. In fact, your bibliography goes on for two pages in small type, <laughs> or more than two pages in small type, listing That's pretty much yeah, every selective. hurricane book I could think of, actually, was, <laughs> is in that bibliography. So how in the world did you keep all of that straight to compile it down into, you know, digestible stories about the storms? Right. Well, it's a, it's a very uh, person-specific process. For me, 
I do the same thing for each book. I spend many months just reading all sorts of documents, not just books, articles, newspaper accounts, diary accounts, and I take uh, copious notes on all of those topics. But I already at this time have a rough outline of the book. So let's say I thought the book was going to be 12 chapters long. For each chapter, I will have a different Microsoft Word file mm -hmm. and actually end up, I'll probably have 10 files for each chapter because there's so much data that I cut and paste from PDFs and other documents. Because uh, to make the process go faster, if I had to hand write these notes or type them out, it would take forever. So what I tend to do is if I find a book or some uh, publication that I know is going to help me write the book and has key information, I scan it and I turn it into a PDF. Mm -hmm. And then I open up do you scan it with your phone, app. by the way? Is that how no, you? No, no, I, oh. no. I scan it with scanners. I, oh, I spend I a lot of time at libraries, and most of them have scanning devices. Mm -hmm. I also have a scanner right here on my desk. I mean, these days, you know, you can do that with your like your, your I can iPhone. Do it with my phone. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've never done that. I've never done that yeah. either, but but I mean, you know, I see people doing that, so I yeah. know it can be done. No. Oh, I spend a lot of time at the Harvard Widener Library because they have every book in the world, and they have these OptiScan devices, which basically have little cradles, and you can open up the book, and you can scan two pages at a time mm -hmm. into a many-page PDF. So what I'll do is I'll scan what I think I want to use, and then I'll come home, put it on my computer, open it up, and I'll read through the document again, and I'll cut pieces, little snippets out of it and I'll put them into Word documents in order. So eventually at the end of the research process, I may have uh, hundreds of megabytes, I'm sure gigabytes of information in my big folder, which is my book folder. And they're split apart based on chapter. So then what I have to start doing is go through each of those uh, documents, read them once again, mm -hmm. and at that point really decide what stories do I want to tell. And that's when it becomes pretty obvious if I have enough information. And if I don't, I go back into the literature and I do a search on the computer for digitized documents or old newspapers and um, I, I put together the story. And when I get to the point that I think I've told the story well enough, I, I stop. But it's a very labor-intensive process. I spend an inordinate amount of time in front of my computer and reading documents. But eventually, it sort of falls into place. But the, the most difficult thing for me, or maybe for anybody, is deciding when you have enough information. And all I can tell you is I get to a point with a specific hurricane or a meteorological concept or a struggle between meteorologists or whatever. I get to a point where I've read enough so that I... I feel like I understand what I'm writing about. And unless you understand what you're writing about and have enough of a information background to say something intelligent, you're not going to be able to write very good text. Right. So the proof is that I, I write a chapter or a paragraph or a page that that sounds right to me. That reflects mm -hmm. what I've re read. And I think it, it makes sense. So it's, it's, a, it's a very time intensive process. It takes a lot of going back and forth, a lot of iteration. Uh, but, but, but it sounds like the, the, at, the, at the base, you have to get organized, right? If you're going to yes. write a book yes. this, this, oh, yeah. uh, this intense, you oh, have yeah. to get organized. And, you know, what you described is a big version of what I did when I wrote 
the Hurricane Andrew book, right? And, right. you know, I, I mean, I was focused on one thing, but there were still many different different chapters, different phases of the event and trying to resurrect in my mind and and through documents to just be sure I had things in the right order and so forth uh, was exactly a version of, of what you said. But, but one of the things that you had the benefit of that I didn't is you lived through it. This is <laughs> yes, your exactly. story. Exactly. So you yes. have much more of a basic familiarity with it. For me, almost all of my books are on topics that I don't know a lot about. Yes, so which is just, I, just amazing, I must say. It, 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 it just really takes a amazing. lot of time for yes. me to get confident yeah. uh, and uh, – I don't know. It's just something I think I got pretty good at it when I was in my master's program, my Ph.D. program. I mean, I wrote a lot of papers. Mm -hmm. I became very familiar with libraries and databases and data sources. And uh, so it, that that makes it easier. But in the end, there's nothing that uh, replaces many long hours before we got on this conversation today. I was reading old books about the American Revolution, and I was I was reading about what was happening in Martinique and privateers that were being sent out from Martinique with mm -hmm. the uh, with the um, connivance of the French to right. molest the British. And I was just learning a lot about Martinique that I didn't know, and about the government there, and the governor, and the American agent there who connived with the governor to circumvent British. You know, the British were complaining about these American privateers right. were coming out of Martinique and were attacking our ships. So I'm learning a lot about something I knew very little about. And there are entire books written about that. Behind me, <laughs> over my shoulder, there are two books there, entire books just written about this one guy, American agent, who was in Martinique, who played a big role in the American Revolution that I had never heard about before. But the same thing happened with hurricanes. And when I got to Hurricane Andrew, of course... I immediately saw your book, and uh, that helped to, to ground me. Not only grounded me, it also put me in contact with you, so you were able to read my manuscript, which is very helpful. And I was able to contact your friend, what's his name, George Butch, I think? Yes, uh, yes, to get provided the— provided a great picture yes, that the, I could the, use of you and your colleagues in the bunker. So, I mean, right. all these things sort of, they, they sort of roll up and add up and— in the end, you hopefully have a good book. Yeah, George uh, George was a great photographer at the TV station at the time, and he came yeah. in with his professional camera uh, at that moment and, and took pictures of Tony Segreto and Kelly Craig uh, and me in, uh, in that storage area. So in the end, you have to make choices when you write the book, right? So you, yep. and you, had, so you had to choose your hurricanes. Now, I, I know there are a number of them, quite a few probably, that you kind of have to choose because they're kind of no right. notorious. Uh, yeah. But were there some, Is that, do any stick in your mind that were tough ones or kind of on the bubble that uh, mm -hmm. you were debating on, on whether to, to put in or out? Or maybe that you oh. wrote about and then decided, well, no, it really doesn't add. Um, no, you know, none comes to mind. I sort of made the selection process in my mind. So before I started writing about them, I had convinced myself that they were going to be included in the narrative. Of course, I read about many more hurricanes that are in that are in the book. Um, I'm trying to think if there was one. There was no hurricane that I wrote about extensively and then had to cut from the book, but there were many that I read about. Like one hurricane, there was a hurricane that occurred during the War of 1812 and sort of clobbered parts of Louisiana and the Gulf Coast. Mm. I didn't include that. 
that would have had a nice connection. Yeah, there's all kinds of 19th century hurricanes that people don't talk yeah. about very much. That uh, And you wrote oh, about a number of them, actually. Oh, there, there is one. No, yeah. there is one hurricane mm-hmm. that I wrote about two pages on, and I really mm-hmm. liked it. And in the end, it only made an appearance in one paragraph. And if I'm, I don't know if I'm saying it correctly, but you can correct me. There was a hurricane in the 1850s that hit Isle Dernier? Yeah, Il Dernier in Louisiana. In Louisiana. Yeah, yeah. And great story. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I, I wrote like two or three really great pages because all these wealthy people were on the island. It was right, they were having a big party on the island. A big party. And they were because they were getting out of New Orleans because yeah. of the. Uh, it was nasty in New Orleans in the right. summertime, so nobody wanted yellow to be fever, yeah. yellow fever in, uh, in the city in the summertime. And, and so, yeah, so they would go down to the. The barrier islands down there, which were dangerous, uh, come hurricane season for sure. Yeah. yeah. So I did write about that. Yes. And that got cut. I just mentioned it briefly. I can't remember why it got cut. I think my editor wanted, she wanted me to cut. It was getting the book was getting too long. But this is unusual. This book I didn't cut nearly as much as like my whaling book. That was my first book with Norton and my first sort of mm-hmm. big book. You know, before that I had written books that were smaller publishers. When I handed that in, that book was 175,000 words long. To give you a comparison, A Furious Sky is only about 108,000 words, I think, 110 maybe. So my whaling mm-hmm. book was 175,000 words. Now, I have to blame my old editor because he originally my contract said to hand in a book that was about 130,000 words, but he read the first half of it and he really liked it. He said, oh, keep writing, add, add. So I added and then when he got the 175,000 words, he read it and he goes, you got to cut about 40,000 words. So wow. I had to go and that's not easy to do. That's once you've done it, it's not easy to edit yourself. Well, yeah. so uh, as you've writing about these hurricanes, I mean, you, you focus the book really, I think, which is what makes it such a wonderful book on the people that lived and died at the time of the storms. And right. there's plenty of stats in there, but it's really yeah. fundamentally about the people. So. A lot of people that listen to this podcast are kind of weather weenies or at least weather interested <laughs> people. I mean, people are not generally going to listen to me if they're not interested in the weather, right? So let's talk about some of the weather forecasting that that went on. And, and okay. you start the book with the obvious place with kind of the first big weather forecast from Christopher Columbus, who predicted a hurricane in 1502, which is almost really a fanciful story uh, i think but how did so how did he uh predict the weather and and give us the thumbnail of what happened well i mean according to the story you and i have to disagree i mean there are a lot of uh, contemporaneous accounts well Maybe i'm just saying i'm not, I'm not saying it was made it up does, i'm just saying it seems not, almost fanciful <laughs> you know right. it's, it's so it's, it's so like hollywood <laughs> right i mean it feels like somebody designed the story right um yeah well, the story, uh, the, the thumbnail of the story is that, of course, uh, Christopher Columbus, who's a very controversial character now, wasn't maybe 50 years ago, uh, he had four journeys to the New World. And during his first three voyages, he interacted a lot with the local natives. And many times the interactions were horrific, mm-hmm. particularly for the natives. However, he did communicate with many of them. And he heard about these massive storms because, of, of course, uh, the people and the cultures who lived in the Caribbean had been dealing with hurricanes since time immemorial. So he heard about these storms. He probably experienced the 
experience the outer effects of some of these storms. It's not clear. There's one uh, storm that he did live through, but uh, like on his second other, voyage or something, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, experience it, it or something. Third, yeah, second voyage because, uh, but it might have been a tornado or something else. It was very mm -hmm. quick duration, mm -hmm. didn't last a long time, damaged some of his ships. So we're not exactly sure what it is. I don't think it was a hurricane, and I base that on what some other meteorologists had said about mm -hmm. it. So, but that's neither here nor there. So he had heard these things from the natives that uh, when a hurricane or bad weather is coming, you get these long, deep swells hitting the coast. Mm -hmm. You have a brick red or red sky in the morning. There are high, wispy clouds. I'm sure he also heard from them, although I didn't see reference to this in any of the accounts. He probably heard from them that some of the animals act differently. So the birds might have mm -hmm. moved someplace. Fish are acting a little bit differently, probably all because of barometric changes uh, in the or pressure. the swells, yeah. Or the yeah. swells. Yeah. So uh, he sort of listened, and he took that into account. And then when he got there during his fourth voyage in the summer of 1502, he had been told to by the king and queen of Spain to avoid Hispaniola, which is now Haiti and the Dominican mm -hmm. Republic, and not to go into the, the port of Santo Domingo. Also, the governor there really disliked Columbus anyway. But when he yeah, there was a whole thing between them, right? It was a whole right. history that, that right. they were enemies, essentially. The enemies. Yeah. So he, he got to Hispaniola, and he suddenly noticed some of these signs. He said, you know, bad weather's coming. Mm -hmm. And he had a particular reason for wanting not only to uh, be able to go into Santo Domingo and protect his ships, but also to keep the governor from sh sending the 20-plus treasure ships back to Spain. Because one of those treasure ships was the diminutive Aguja, or the Needle, which had on board the gold and silver that Christopher Columbus had been promised by the king and queen. So he knew that this, he thought he knew that this hurricane was coming. Mm -hmm. He feared that if this fleet took off right now, it would encounter the hurricane and a lot of the ships would be damaged or sunk potentially his ship as well with right. all of his money. So he pleaded with Governor Ovando not only to let him into Santo Domingo, but also not to send the fleet mm -hmm. out. Well, Avando totally dismissed his prediction and didn't let him into Santo Domingo. And uh, as a result, uh, Columbus just cruised along the coast, found another embayment to protect his four ships while this hurricane uh, roared in. But before the hurricane roared in, Governor Avando sent off the treasure fleet. And it rammed into the hurricane. And, and all the ships sank except for... <laughs> yeah. Not, well, not all the ships. Almost oh, all the oh, ships Oh, is that right? Sank. It wasn't all three of them? Of them th three of them turned around and went back to Santa Oh, okay. It wasn't the total they, Hollywood ending. It, it wasn't was, total <laughs> Hollywood. They, they yeah. made it back into Santa Domingo. But the Aguja, the ship with Columbus's money on yeah. board, did make it through... <laughs> To Spain. So when word got back to Avando, this horrible thing that had happened, and then he realized that Columbus had predicted it, mm -hmm. incidentally, the first successful hurricane forecast <laughs> exactly. in Western Hemisphere by a European, and uh, he accused Columbus of sorcery. Right. And added to the mix was the fact that one of the people that went down and was killed was a guy named Bobadilla, who mm -hmm. was the magistrate who just a few years before had put Columbus on trial in Hispaniola, had found him guilty of various infractions, and put him in chains on a boat back to Spain. So it all added up to somehow Columbus had brought down this hurricane to 
revenge himself. Yeah. Some kind of Columbus karma going on with that story. I, it was really, I mean, it is an amazing story, and it's, uh, yeah. it's a great way to start the book. I would have started the book there, too. Yeah. Uh, and you had details in the story that, that I didn't know. So you mentioned a hurricane that I don't think gets enough discussion, uh, and it's the 1821 storm that went over, went over Norfolk, actually, but it really went up the Jersey Shore, went right over New York City as, uh, they say, the last category three or above hurricane to hit New York City, although I don't think there's certainty on that. And it went over New England, very importantly, because there was a guy named William Redfield in right. Connecticut, I think, right, that didn't yeah, forecast it, but but uh, he became the name associated with that 1821 hurricane, which really, in many ways, kicked off tropical meteorology, even though there had been there was some discussion of it before that. But anyway, uh, talk about the 1821 hurricane and, and William Redfield. Yeah, William Redfield is an interesting character. He was sort of a self-taught man. His family moved out to Ohio. They left him behind when he was young. He apprenticed to a saddler in Cromwell, Connecticut, sort of in the middle of Connecticut. And uh, he was a bit of an autodidact and a self-learner. And luckily, there was a doctor in town who had a decent library and would let William read all these books on science. So he grew up to become a relatively successful store owner in the area. He married. He had some children. And then in 1821, uh, I think it was in October, if I remember correctly, uh, this hurricane roared through. And uh, he, he right about that time, his wife had given birth to another one of his sons. His wife died in childbirth. The son followed soon thereafter. So he had the very somber task of taking a wagon from Cromwell to Stockbridge, where his in-laws lived, to tell them about the death of their daughter and one of their grandchildren. So you have to keep in mind that Cromwell is sort of here. Stockbridge is 70 miles north and to the west. Mm -hmm. So he was a very observant man. So as he was taking his wagon from Cromwell to Stockbridge, he noticed something very strange. All the trees around Cromwell that had been knocked over had their crowns pointing to the northwest. So they were pointing sort of up that mm -hmm. direction. Then when he got over to Stockbridge, he noticed that the crowns of the trees were pointing to the southeast. And this mm -hmm. got him wondering, how could such powerful winds within 70 miles or 30 miles of each other be going in exactly opposite direction? So he started to look into accounts and talk to people along the way. And what he came, he came to the conclusion that this hurricane was a big whirlwind. It was going basically in a circle. Mm -hmm. And Cromwell was on one side and Stockbridge was maybe on the other side. And... Uh, he kept that secret to himself, and he spent about 10 years studying everything he could about hurricanes. And he came to this – his theoretical conclusion was basically that hurricanes are big circular storms, that they uh, rotate counterclockwise in the northern hemisphere, clockwise in the southern hemisphere. They move. You can have winds contrary. I mean all the, uh, the basic sort of form of the hurricane. He didn't have all the mechanisms down pat as to why this was happening. But uh, he knew a lot about hurricanes. And then in 1831, he was on a steamboat, actually one that he owned. And there was a professor from Yale, Denison Olmsted, also on the steamboat. And they started talking. Olmsted was a chemistry 
I don't know if he's officially a meteorology professor, but he had a theory about hail formation that Redfield was interested in mm-hmm. querying him about. And in conversation, Olmsted suddenly realized that he was in the presence of somebody who knew a lot about meteorology or the weather. So Redfield decided to tell him his theory about the hurricane. And Olmsted thought, this is fantastic. This is a big uh, advancement in the field of meteorology. You have to publish it. And Redfield was reticent because he's not a professional. He felt he felt he wouldn't be taken seriously. So finally, he came to an agreement with Olmsted that Olmsted would help him publish the book in one of the premier journals of the time. And they did. And it caused quite a stir. A lot of people supported his theory of hurricanes. Uh, James Espy, as you know, Mm -hmm. another more professional meteorologist, had a different theory. He was a very smart guy, very talented. Stubborn. Stubborn, very (laughs) stubborn. But but he understood that hurricanes are basically – and again, I – you're more knowledgeable about this than I am, but basically heat engines, and it's the uh, warm, moist air as it rises over the ocean, or even over land, I guess, but over the ocean, the moisture condenses, and when right. it condenses into rain or snow, it releases this latent heat that gives power to the storm, but it also creates a little bit of a low-pressure area down low, and as everybody who went to school has heard nature abhors a vacuum. Well, it wasn't mm-hmm. quite a vacuum, but wind would rush in from the side. Espion, I wonder why he stuck to this. It's really strange. But he believed that the wind went in at exactly right angles, all mm-hmm. the way to the center, like the spokes of a wheel. So he and Redfield were in opposition. Redfield had this concept of this swirling storm. Uh, Espy must have known that it was a swirling storm, but he thought it was maybe more like a tornado, but the winds were rushing in somehow. Mm-hmm. Well, both of them were partially right, as we know, and it took the contribution of William Farrell, another self-taught genius, during the mid-1800s, to mm-hmm. take the Coriolis effect, which had been... Uh, predicted or had been uh, proposed yeah proposed theorized theorized, yes Mm -hmm. by Mm -hmm. and he applied it to Mm -hmm. meteorology so basically in the northern hemisphere as all your listeners know the winds do rush in towards the center but they're deflected to the right because Mm -hmm. of the spinning of the earth and its its effect and i couldn't go into the specifics and this is Mm -hmm. where you had asked me a question before at another time about sort of deciding what, how do you know enough or, or where do you want to draw the line this book is designed for the average reader mm-hmm. not a hardcore as you would call them weather weenie however I think the book is very valuable for weather weenies and I hope many of them read it because it gives a broader context to what they devote so much of their time to but I realize that me not being a meteorologist and I couldn't tell you what angular momentum was if you paid me a thousand dollars and really understand it and some of the physics as i read some of these textbooks and uh, more intense scientific descriptions of hurricane behavior and computer modeling and all this stuff i realized it was just beyond me to have an intuitive grasp of it mm-hmm. i'm just not very good at that so i try to explain it in a way that an average person would understand but still be correct yeah, no, I, I I got it, and I totally agree. And and the more that weather sciencey weather people understand the, the that at that level, I think it's beneficial. I think I think you do better right. science, right? If you if you understand things that you know where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, you know where it interfaces with the the right. public, right? So and talking, it's your, it's your well, it's your whole 
career. Right. Well, yeah. So, uh, you know, when when I I write almost every morning, I write a post during hurricane. I've been reading it. Yes. So (laughs) I I write that for everybody. Right. I you know, my my goal is to never use a word that an average person wouldn't understand. So I don't use words like wind shear. I don't I don't use words. uh, There's a whole list of them. That I don't convection. Convection is a very common word when you talk about tropical meteorology. I don't use that word. I don't even use tropical cyclone because the word cyclone, you know, in in somebody's infinite wisdom, they decided to use the same word for three different meanings that are unrelated to each other. You know, like the average person would be able to sort that out on the fly. So uh, anyway, so but I'm all in 100 percent with with your idea so talking about a uh, another famous uh, weather person and the star or the villain depending on your point of view of the galveston hurricane in 1900 was uh, the meteorologist isaac klein and he's quite famous these days and and has been for some time because of the book by eric larson uh, isaac storm was he a star back at that time as well or is you know his prominence in the galveston story uh, uh more of a modern creation do you have a sense of that uh, yeah, he, he was a star within the world of meteorology. He was a rising star. Yeah, after the fact, young. after that storm, he became a big star. He was in Louisiana, but I, I didn't. Right. I just don't know the answer of before. He, he was well known. Yeah. He was certainly well known as the, he was the head of the Weather Bureau, essentially in in Galveston, right. in Texas, and he was well known there and well respected. I, I don't know what his standing was nationally at mm-hmm. that time, uh, but certainly his people's knowledge of him now is largely as a result of Isaac Storm, although I have to point out that there were a number of other books that were written right after the hurricane that mention him prominently, and there's a great book that was written before um, uh, Eric Larson's book, and Eric Larson used it as a source, Mm -hmm. as did I, and it was called Death from the Sea by a guy named Mason, wonderful writer. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the stories that are in that book are in Eric Larson's books, and, and some of them are in my book. So everybody builds on the shoulders of other people. Very few things are made out, out of whole cloth. Uh, so, uh, Especially big events like this, the big, big notorious events like, events like this, yes. But absolutely, more the, it's the single thing that made Isaac Klein very famous in meteorological and just the public circles is definitely uh, Isaac Storm, uh, the Eric Larson. So was he a hero or a villain or somewhere in between, do you think? I don't think he's either, really. Mm -hmm. I I, I think he was very knowledgeable, but he was limited, just like other meteorologists at the time. Although he was kind of definitive before the storm about the fact that they couldn't have a hurricane in Galveston, which was a crazy idea. I think he was too narrow-minded. I think Mm -hmm. he was too arrogant. I don't think he was a villain. He certainly never, never would want something like this to happen. And if he could go back, he would have changed his mind. But I was rather surprised because one thing that I did that uh, Eric Larson didn't do, he just he just went back. He sort of relied on what Isaac Klein said in that newspaper article. Mm-hmm. He went back 20 years and there had been no West Indian hurricane that had hit Texas or they'd been minor or India. Eh, but there had been. And go I back 30 decided, years, for God's sake. Yeah, I know. And, <laughs> yeah, and that's I know. It's crazy. I know. Years, yeah. Yeah. And I used <laughs> the National Weather Service records right. and I suddenly discovered that there were a slew of storms. Well, especially the Indianola story, 
yeah. because Indianola was the the competition for Galveston. It was a right. it was another port, right? That right. got obliterated. <laughs> so you would have thought that in Galveston, I never understood this aspect of the Isaac Klein story because right. you would have thought that that would have been at the top of people's minds, that their main right. competitive other city got obliterated and by two hurricanes in 11 years. And you would have thought that that would have clued them that maybe the hurricanes could have come 50 miles up the coast. Well, it, it, it did in a sense because I have some quotes from newspapers right after the Indianola hurricanes that basically said, Galveston, you're next. You know, you yeah. need to watch out. Oh, yeah, I do remember those. Those were excellent. Galveston I had never seen those before. That was great. The Galvestonians uh, actually took that to heart, and they were going to build a a wall, a hurricane barrier, <laughs> yeah. but out of sight, out of mind. And then comes along Isaac Klein in 1891 and says, ah, don't worry about it. It's never going to hit there. It's a freak of nature. And I think the message to me of the Galveston hurricane and the Isaac Klein story is not that he was a villain. But it's how easily you can become arrogant and overly confident if you limit your gaze and don't have a sufficient imagination or a sufficient grasp of history. Yes. Right. So uh, it's really a shame, but it's it's almost a Hollywood story. I'm surprised they haven't made a movie out of it. I am, yet. too. I am, too, because it, it really it, it is. It's another one of those stories that you just – can't hardly imagine exactly how how all those things fit together that it had to be some sort of like you say arrogance or or at the time actually i mean there was an issue in the um the weather bureau at the time with kind of an right. arrogance descending from washington right yes, that we know absolutely. what we really have these things figured out we know that yeah. they all going to curve like this so uh you know it probably was related to that in to some degree but it would be a great yeah. movie i agree yeah so the local meteorologists uh, at the time with the weather bureau the predecessor to the national weather service were kind of local stars in a lot of places including here in miami there was a guy named richard gray who right. uh, came here in, in 1911, and he was the meteorologist in charge at the Miami Weather, uh, Weather Bureau office, which was in downtown Miami in the great Miami hurricane of, of 1996 and that kind of epic. 1926. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, 1926, yes. <laughs> 1926, uh, and it was kind of an epic uh, event. So uh, one of the, there are many aspects to that. I mean, that's a big time hurricane. In fact, in some ways, the biggest ever if it were to happen again the, they right. estimate it would be the most expensive ever uh but the story of what happened when the eye came along i think is informative about you know how <laughs> challenging it was to uh to communicate at oh yeah at the time i mean people, well uh, as you know a hurricane a major hurricane hadn't hit miami for quite a few decades mm -hmm. and people do have a very short attention span. It actually had believe. never, I mean, there had been a hurricane in 1906, but, but Nearby, 1906 yeah. and 1926, Miami was a completely different right. place. Yeah, it, and and so in, in that interim, there had been no real significant storm uh, in Miami. Right. So they, they, you're absolutely right. They didn't have the familiarity of their institutional uh, knowledge. Um, but also it's kind of surprising, nevertheless, that these people in Florida which had been hit by other hurricanes and there were other population centers and just the whole East coast that people on a co in a coastal area in the tropics or in the tro subtropics would 
not have sort of understood the concept of a hurricane eye, which is pretty well known by then. Mm-hmm. And what happened, they have a description in the storm and uh, this guy Gray actually <laughs> experienced it directly because the eye of the storm came over where his uh, office was. And the eyes can last, you could tell me better than anybody, but eyes can last for quite some time. Sometimes they're very quick, but you can have 30, 40 minutes. Oh, where easy, yeah. And I don't recall the 20, but it was long because it was a giant hurricane. It was a yeah. big, big hurricane that encompassed all of downtown Miami right. and uh, uh, more than half of Miami Beach all at the same time. I mean, and, yeah. and uh, for people that know South Florida, included what today is the Dadeland area, well south of town. I mean, all of that <laughs> was yeah. in the eye of the hurricane. It yeah, was a and giant in the storm. Eye, it's, it's beautiful. The eye is yeah. one of the most amazing meteorological structures, right. I think, that's out there. And it's very calm. And all of a sudden, people say, hey, the wind's, wind's dying down. I could see the sky maybe. It could be, couldn't even be sunny. And they came out from hiding, and they thought it was all over. And unfortunately, a number of people went on some of the causeways mm-hmm. from Miami Beach to Miami, and uh, they uh, got caught when the other right. side of the eye came by. Yeah, because and, they lost communications with Miami Beach, yeah. right? The phone lines went out, so yeah. people yes, so people got washed off the causeways and 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 the second half was the worst part of that storm. Right. Uh, in terms of the intensity of the wind and and so forth. And so you know, I have to, I have to add something here because go ahead. I've never lived through I I did a radio interview the other day with somebody in New Orleans mm-hmm. and she asked me and actually, I've been asked this a number of times. She goes, you wrote this book. You must have some personal tragic experience with a hurricane, right? Well, unfortunately, or fortunately, mm-hmm. the answer is no. I've never been where a hurricane has landfalled. I've lived in New York and New England my whole life. And we've seen the remnants of Sandy and Gloria and, uh, you know, Bob. Bob. Mm-hmm. But I don't know what it's like to live through a hurricane. And one of the things that writing this book did for me is it was like vicarious fear. I read I read so many accounts of people in pure terror or losing 30 members of their family and stuff. And I still viscerally, I can't really understand what it must feel like. Mm-hmm. But I've spoken to so many people who measure their life based on, you know, before Camille, after Camille, mm-hmm. before Andrew, after Andrew. And uh, you must have had, you've had that experience. I mean, it's, it must be. It must create an imprint on your mind that is so powerful. Oh, no question about it. And and the people, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to live close to downtown Miami. So I went home to my house, it, you know, didn't have power and there was the yard was a mess and there was a little bit of damage. But I mean. I the the over why I wrote about it in the book the the big feeling I felt was guilt you know that seven miles away you know my friends were were it was hell on earth down there just that close you know right uh, and people that lived from there south uh, it was uh, you know it changed their lives and people to this day yeah. talk about before Andrew and after Andrew the the other you know uh, I mean, there are many famous South Florida storms, but the 1926 Miami hurricane and the 1935 uh, hurricane in the Florida Keys obviously are at the top of the list. Uh, right. That The 1935 storm came in, and what today we call the Upper Keys, although it was Isla Mirada and Matacombe Key. Uh, so the story that I knew for years and years and years was that the forecasters who were in Jacksonville at the time, and really 
good forecasters and very you know right. dedicated people uh, essentially lost it because it was a small storm. Um, yeah. And and it was a small storm, so it was in the Straits of Florida between Cuba and and the Keys. Everybody was watching the barometer like crazy, but the story some few, relatively few years ago came out that I didn't, I never knew for decades of looking at hurricanes about the the American guy that the Cubans sent up in the plane to go. Right find the storm Povey, right yeah. and he goes yeah. up and and uh povey right uh, yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he goes up and he finds the storm and he goes wait a minute the storm is not where they said it was and then he right. goes back and i don't know whether he radioed from the plane or or what he did but did that information which by the way i think I just wonder, but I think maybe the first time anybody's ever gone on a plane to yes. scout a hurricane, right? Yes. But he don't think he gets appropriate credit for that, by the way. Uh, yeah. The guy oh. in the 1943 <laughs> hurricane that actually flew it into the plane, he gets all the credit in the Houston uh, hurricane. But, but it's, all, it's, a, it's a little different. It's a little Bobby different thing. Very he, far away from the but hurricane. he was scouting it. He's in a little biplane. I mean, he's yeah. in a little paper plane. But, but yeah. in any case, what I never understood really is did that information that – Povey found in terms of locating the storm farther north than right. the uh, Weather Bureau was indicating it should be and so forth. Did that get to Jacksonville? Did they ever? Yeah. Yeah. They knew that. It did. The, the forecast, I don't view the people in Jacksonville as making a huge mistake. No, I don't think so either. And they actually issued the hurricane warning and said it was going to hit roughly where it hit. A number of hours before it did hit the real problem from my perspective is a misunderstanding about what the relief train could and would do if the relief train which was according to the people who were at the veterans camp their understanding was that they had an agreement with the florida railway that during hurricane season basically within a couple of hours they could get a train down there the problem is the people at the railway station, their understanding was once you tell us you need it, we will need quite a bit of time. We need to round up the crew. We need to get the boiler going. Mm -hmm. So there was a, a quite a few hour difference in those two people's conception of how quickly a, a train could get down there. Well, and then also it's, it was Labor Day and, and so there were all Day, kinds yeah. of other – the, the, the guy was but on the think, golf course that had to be yeah. dealt with. And, I mean lots of but, things going on. But think about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, the timing, if that train had just made it to the camps two hours earlier, which was possible, right. I believe most of those veterans would have been evacuated. They would have been on the train and they would have been far enough north towards Homeland, uh, Homestead mm -hmm. um, to have survived because it was a very compact storm. Uh, but we can't we can't go and redo history. Right. And uh but there's no doubt that the weather server, the weather bureau, and the people did have a tough time tracking this hurricane because it was very small and it was this rapid intensification. And you can tell me, I, I read a couple of articles, not about this hurricane, but one of the things that meteorologists still are having a difficult time understanding is this intense, rapid intensification. Is that mm -hmm. still the case? Is it? Yeah, yeah. That's, well, the scariest uh, hurricane scenario is the 1935. Scenario or the Andrew scenario or Michael uh, or Camille. There's only four category fives in our record book, and all of them were tropical storms three days before. Right. And they, they all share the geometry of being relatively small, all relatively close in. 
So, you know, they're all in the waters around Florida or in the Gulf right. because that's where the, the warmest, deepest water hurricane fuel is. So if you get a small storm uh, in pristine atmospheric conditions over that water, it can spin up in a, in a big, big hurry. And, you know, that's what happened yeah. in, in 35 for sure. Yeah. But, and you, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. What are you gonna no, say? Well, you mentioned before about the 1926 hurricane. Mm -hmm. and, it, and I think I have a footnote about that on the page that an analysis of what would happen if that same hurricane hit Miami today and it was close to 200 billion dollars yeah 200 it's like 250 billion dollars yeah. uh yeah so, there's of of all the past <laughs> storms uh the, the people that have done this kind of calculation say that if that one were to happen again that would be the most exp expensive hurricane of all time uh i mean there are a lot of over 100 billion dollar storms in in the list right by the way so it's right you know but that's and, what for me is a as a layperson or just thinking about this history, that's what makes me the most nervous because in a sense, hurricanes are like a meteorological lottery. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are odds they could hit many places. You don't know where they're going to hit. And a 50 mile shift is like night and day, depending on what part of the coast. Yeah. A 12 and, mile uh, shift in hurricane Andrew would have changed yeah. Miami forever. It wouldn't be the city it is today if, if it had been 12 miles farther North. So yeah, it's, it so is. A lot of people, a lot of people up here in, in <laughs> New England have been asking me, are we going to get another big hurricane like 38? And I, the answer is, I believe, yes, eventually we are. <laughs> but when will we get it? I don't know. And the the the, uh, the wild card, the thing that makes me even more nervous is I watched a documentary the other day about the lobster fishery. The lobster mm -hmm. fishery has been moving northward from Long Island up towards the Canada Maritimes consistently because the water temperatures off the East Coast, the Northeast, have been getting perceptibly warmer in recent years. Yeah, so this year it's unbelievable how warm they are. Actually, I, I go swimming down yes. to the beach. It feels like it's, it should be September right. or something yeah. at the end of the season. Yeah. So uh, you tell me if I'm wrong, but one thing I said to a reporter the other day, I said – you know what? If our warmer, if our waters get permanently warmer, one of the things that puts a break on a hurricane are cooler waters. Right. But mm -hmm. if we have a slice of incredibly, it's like if the if the Gulf Stream moved over and just hit New England instead of meandering arms of it, and we had that warm water, you might have a racetrack to enable a hurricane to come up from the tropics and go all the way to New England, maybe even a Category Four. Well, Isaias um, was no doubt stronger than it would have been if the waters had been a normal temperature, just right. just tracking kind of up the Jersey uh, shore. So you, you talked about your neighborhood there. I was going to ask you, uh, you tell the story okay. about the great colonial hurricane of 1635 um, yeah. in, in the book and uh, a story about it. And, and I've read uh, about that it's an amazingly well documented storm considering it's 1635 yeah. <laughs> and europeans had only arrived there you know uh, 15 years uh, before that but right. do your neighbors have a, a sense of that i mean you live in massachusetts no. you know it's a big historical place right everybody kind of knows something no, about I mean, history there people but, that are history junkies maybe but yeah. no the average person around here uh, the only hurricane they know about in New England is, you know, the ones that we talked about before, 38, Gloria or, or Bob. And, and nobody you know, talks they, about 1815 either, by the way. Nobody talks about 1815. <laughs> Which was a no. big, big deal hurricane in New England. Here, I'll answer it a different way. Yeah. 
I'm a pretty smart guy. I've read a lot of books, uh, history. I didn't I didn't go to school for history, mm-hmm. but in doing writing my other books, I had to read tons of books about the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries. Not once in all of my reading for all of my prior books did I ever run across an account that I can remember of the 1815 hurricane, the 1821 hurricane, mm-hmm. the 1635 hurricane. I never it just wasn't mentioned. Right. So, uh no, most people are totally ignorant, and unfortunately, I, I <laughs> the up, up and coming generation. I have a lot of faith in them and the like, but based on my interactions with the public when I go out and give talks, I am amazed how oftentimes how little people know about the history of their own area that goes back more than ten or twenty years. Well, that is surprising to me in Massachusetts because I mean I spent a lot of time in Massachusetts and. And New Hampshire, and I mean, those are pretty those are, pretty historically oriented well, locations. Yes. I mean, the towns, yes, right. right? Everybody can tell you that the town was founded in you know 1673, and you know they live right. in in that kind of uh, historical. You're, you're right. I should, I should, I should give know, my fellow patina. more credit. A yeah, lot of yeah. things when it comes to pilgrims and the Puritans, they right. know a lot. When it comes right. to meteorology, I would say they know very little. Yeah. Uh, because even when I wrote my book on the fur trade. The first half of my book is all New England. Mm-hmm. And I remember a number of people from New England, they had vaguely heard about the beaver trade in New England, but they had no idea that the beaver trade was even more important, I think, than whaling in some respects mm-hmm. in charting the course for the colonies and charting the course for the evolution of the United States. So a lot of people have a superficial knowledge. And if you ask people around here about historic houses like the Lee Mansion downtown in Marblehead or things that they see or museums mm-hmm. they go to, yes, they do know a lot, especially people that are attuned to history. But some of the broader history, not so much. Well, I think Paul Revere and John Adams and Samuel Adams yeah. and all these people kind of crowded out all the other – a lot of the right. other history, right? I mean because we think Absolutely. of New England and we think in terms of Revolutionary War history because yes. one of the big – events of in new england history was uh tambora the volcano right tambora right which ended up driving people out of new england to settle in the midwest because they had uh winter weather all year round in and in the year with 1815 no yeah. yeah uh and uh, so that essentially created the midwest and drove people out of out of New Hampshire and all the farming and so forth. So anyway, it's a, yes, uh, there's a lot of history in New England. So just uh, to wrap up, you, you because it's important, I think, that we mention this, you touch in your book on climate and hurricanes. So right. among the, the scientists that you talked to, did you find a consensus among them about how the climate, the changing climate is affecting hurricanes and how hurricanes are likely to behave in the warmer world? Now, my reading of the literature and listening to scientists or talking with them is I still believe very strongly that the consensus position is that the cause and effect relationship between warming and hurricane behavior is a little too complicated to make hard and fast uh, conclusions. However, because every single scientific paper uses scientific language, mm-hmm. it's likely, probably, maybe, mm-hmm. if this happens – And that's sort of how scientists talk. But if you go beneath the surface and 
you take all of the information together, I think what is very clear to me as a layperson is that the evidence that future hurricanes are going to be different, we're not quite sure how, but are going to be different and likely, very likely, stronger and wetter, uh, that's the only message I think you can take away from the hundreds of papers that have gone over the data and done computer modeling to answer those questions. They'll always caveat it with, well, we don't know. And some of the studies... Well, we're not 100% sure. We're not 100% sure. Not so, 100% yeah, sure yeah. But they're pretty sure. It's more than 50% sure. And the way that I look at it, my background's public policy. Every environmental policy that's been passed has none of them have been based based on a hundred percent scientific certainty. Mm -hmm. They're based on a calculation that based on that what we know we know enough to take action because we're pretty darn sure that if we don't act to get PFCs out of you know the the environment the, the ozone hole is going to mm -hmm. get worse. Or if we don't get pollution out of a river out of these rivers, our rivers are going to catch on fire again. I mean there are a lot of we know that what's going to happen we can't tell you exactly how it's going to change but we know it's bad and we know that it's something that we should take action on the same thing with like acid rain debate which i was very involved in when i was a graduate student and i actually spent a, a year a uh, something well, i spent four months working for a senator from connecticut in washington dc on acid rain legislation in the early 80s and there were a lot of predictions about how acidic precipitation had become and its impact but the foresters that i knew and talked to they couldn't tell you exactly what was going to happen to all those cedar trees or or you know the, the trees on mount musalaki in new hampshire or whatever they were seeing changes they knew that it could get a lot worse and that was enough for people to take action to put scrubbers in smokestacks to get rid of sulfur dioxide and other things that contribute to acidic precipitation i feel very strongly if i was a senator or if i was the president i have no problem throwing onto the heap of all the things we're concerned about with global warming to add hurricanes getting stronger and wetter but you know what there are some studies that show as you well know that maybe hurricanes are going to linger longer and they'll they'll move more slowly well that's even more concerning right but there are also studies that you know indicate that maybe we'll have fewer hurricanes but the ones we have will be monsters will be stronger well, yes that's a trade-off yeah yeah well i, I mean uh, I, I actually had dr adam sobel who professor at uh, yeah. columbia university columbia. he was yeah. uh, we had a great podcast just uh, a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about this and and he makes a, a similar point to to you he said look we don't know a hundred percent of everything but we know enough to know that hurricanes are going to get worse and and i and what i say is that but my sense is that the meteorological worseness is in the noise relative yep. to the coastal development issue yes, in making them absolutely. worse right so absolutely. so uh i mean yes we should all be concerned about the warming planet and the effects on the weather and the effect on hurricanes but we really need to concentrate more on what we're doing and what we have right. immediate control over in terms of, and I don't say more isn't the right word. We also, we can't take our eye off the fact that how we build along the coast right. makes so much difference in, in uh, the outcome of, of a hurricane. Oh, right? yeah, and whether there are stories for people like you to write about after yeah. the fact, right? It, it's, yeah, uh, well, I, well, 
I, it's got well, to do I'll with what's here. I'll say two things about that. I, I agree 100%. Right now with coastal development and people still flocking to the coast, even if hurricanes didn't change at all, we've, we've got two freight trains coming at each other. Right. Eventually, there's going to be a connection between a massive hurricane and a massively populated area that's going to create something that may even make Katrina – look like a day in the park well not a day in the park but there, there are going to be other hurricanes that future writers are going to write about in the same way that we write about katrina and andrew and the hurricane of 1926 and others uh, that's inevitable it only gets worse when we imagine that you have the collision between increased development more population poor planning perhaps and stronger hurricanes, then it just ratchets up your level of concern, which is already at a high level. But you mentioned hurricanes you know, th that are going to come again. I've already been asked by my publisher, the paperback of this book is going to come out a year from now. And I already was asked by my publisher, are you going to add something to the epilogue you know, if we have a if this hurricane season turns out to be as bad as some people are predicting? And my answer is, yeah, sure, I'll add something. Uh, I hope that all the hurricanes miss us. Mm -hmm. I don't know what's going to happen in the next, you know, 83% of the hurricane season is still in front of us, I guess. So, uh, but if this becomes a year like 2017, where people, it's a year of hurricanes and we get some whoppers, yeah, I'm going to write something new. Well, for the and, paper. and the other thing I think that's remarkable is, you, you know, we think of 2017 as just being this kind of onslaught, uh, which of course 2005 was as well. But if you go back, to 1893 or 1886 or, yeah. or 1933, you, I mean, makes those years look easy. You know, right. <laughs> when I used to read about historical hurricanes, I used to think, how in the world would we operate when it was like some sort of a shotgun full of hurricanes coming at us? You know, it was just a, a crazy thing. Well, Eric, um, uh, thank you so much for, for your time. We went on longer than I intended. And I hope you sell a lot of books okay. because I really <laughs> fundamentally believe that the more people understand about the history of hurricanes, the better they are likely to be prepared for the hurricanes of the future. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I agree with your sentiment 100%. Sell more books. <laughs> yeah. All right. Be well. Stay safe. Take care. Okay. Thank you. If you're interested in hurricanes, this is the book, A Furious Sky, The 500-Year History of America's Hurricanes. It's terrific. So next week on the podcast, we'll talk with Brian McNulty at the University of Miami's Rosenstiel School of Marine and Atmospheric Science called Rasmus. If you follow meteorologists on Twitter, you see great information that Brian posts about hurricanes and about climate. He seems to keep the records on Virginia Key in Miami, uh, where the temperatures keep going up and keep setting records. Also, Brian writes for the Washington Post Capital Weather Gang, about hurricanes. So we'll have a lot to talk to him about. That'll be next Wednesday on the podcast. Stay informed this week, of course, in the tropics as we see what develops with Tropical Depression 13. That's our podcast for this week. Thanks to Eric Dolan for being with us. For Luke Doris, I'm Brian Norcross. Have a good week. Stay safe and please wear a mask. <laughs>